topic that I'm having a hard time getting off of, and that is to know Jesus. And um, this time I want to speak, kind of taken off where we left off last week, and that is to know Jesus, we really must dwell in his presence. We really can't get to know Jesus unless we take the time to dwell. And we're going to talk about dwelling today. What does it mean to dwell in the presence of the Lord? And I know that, you know, we can rush through our quiet times. In fact, our life is made up of rush, rush, busy, busy, got to get to the next task, don't have time to sit here very long. I understand that. And it's difficult sometimes to, to find that, that, that quiet time. But, you know, it's much more than just that quiet time. Living a life of vibrant Christianity is much more than just that 15, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever that moment of time that you can carve out for that quiet time. It's much more than that. Dwelling in the presence of the Lord is much more than just that individual time of quietness, even though as important as that is, the continual lifestyle of living. And we're, we want to talk about that, how, how the dwelling moves into all aspects of our lives. And I really believe the Lord is keeping me on this topic this morning because it is absolutely vitally important to lay the foundation that we need to have in this church and in your life. Dick said a really good thing interesting this morning on foundations at Sunday school. And a foundation is laid one time and it's forever. A foundation never changes. It never changes. That doesn't mean the building on top of the foundation can't change. But the foundation doesn't change. The problem becomes is when we build the foundation, if we don't take the time to build it properly, if we don't take the time to let the Holy Spirit give us truly the God foundation that he wants us to build our house on, then we can build the foundation wrongly. And once you start building on the wrong foundation, to come back and fix that is a real major work. Then you have to do a lot of work on the house to get down to the foundation. So it's important that we take the time to build the foundation in our lives so that we're putting them on godly principles. Not our own ideas, not our own thoughts, not our own spin-offs, but on godly foundations, what the Word of God says. Place your foundation on the Word of God and then don't change it. The problem happens when we start building a house, we start adding additions to our house that we move off the foundation. If we don't put a good, a good foundation under the addition, the addition is going to crack and it's going to crumble and we're going to have a problem. So, um, you know, if you want to talk more about that, talk to Ron and Dick because they're builders and they can tell you all about it. I'm just speaking. But they, they live it. And I think that the purpose for keeping us on this subject also is because of the importance. And I know for a fact, because I deal with this in my life, I'm not sure that I get it. So the Lord keeps coming back to me and pounding me with this until I get it. When I get it, maybe you'll get it. <laughs> but the Lord is still coming back because I think there are a lot of people here that think that this quiet time and this dwelling time is a nicety or it's a trivial point, or it's an optional point, or it may be for them, but it's not for me. Well, let me tell you, to be a Christian, truly to be a vibrant Christian, this is not an optional thing. 
you must have your own solid foundation. You can't live on your parents' foundation, kids. You can't live on your husband's foundation, wife, or other way around. You have to have your own solid foundation because there's going to come a day sooner than what we can imagine when we stand before the God of gods and he examines our foundation. And we want to make sure that it's right. I see my role here um, to call us to a deeper and more authentic walk with Jesus on a regular basis. And I know that this can be kind of difficult sometimes. And this analogy of a an alarm clock came to me as I was thinking about my role. You know, an alarm clock is a very important thing in our life for those that get up by alarm clocks in the morning. And they're not your friend. An alarm clock is not something you look forward to going off in the morning. You set your alarm when you go to bed at night and you hope it does the job. And when the alarm goes off in the morning, if it could speak to you or if you could speak to it, you wouldn't have a very good relationship at that moment in time with your alarm clock, would you? But yet, if your alarm clock didn't do its job, what would happen to your life? What, where would you be if your alarm clock didn't do what it was supposed to do? See, you set it to wake you in the morning. You set it to do the job that you don't even really like that it does, but it's so important that it does it that your life depends on it. At least your job probably depends on it. <laughs> and, you know, that's the role of a pastor. A pastor is like an alarm clock. <laughs> See, the clock throughout the day is keeping time, and it's moving along, and it's doing, it's doing its job, maybe not in a sense of urgency, because you don't really care if it's 10 o'clock or 10.01, typically, but you want it to be accurate, right? It doesn't really do its job until it comes time to wake you up in the morning. And then that shocker comes and it wakes you up. That's kind of the life of a pastor. Every once in a while, a pastor comes along and has to be the alarm clock in your life. Has to be the person to prod you to wake you up. Because who else is going to do that? Who else in your social circle is going to come to you and give you biblical truth that may not be what you want to hear. Anybody shout anything out here? Anybody want to help me out? Who else is going to be that person that's going to come to you and encourage you to live a godly life? Well, absolutely. The Holy Spirit does. And, I, and I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit speaking to the pastor. It's not, it's not a person, okay? It's not... It's not any person. It's the role of a pastor. It's the role of a teacher. But it all comes through the Holy Spirit. Amen? I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Angel. That's, a good, that's, that's good. Because you're right. It's not the people. It's the Holy Spirit. But my role here this morning is, is to... Um, <laughs> I had a guy, when I was dealing with Ford Motor Company, whenever we would come in with a price increase, I would sell industrial controls, factory automation stuff. And whenever we were coming into Rich Gent, and Rich was the, uh, the manager of the controls purchasing all the stuff at Vehicle Operations, so he was a big customer of ours. And uh, Paul Pedry, the Alan Bradley guy, and myself, and when I was working for Mac and Mac, and we'd come in and time for the price increase, and, and we'd always start talking, you know, and, and he says, what are you guys, swabbing me? You know, you know and he was swabbing me. Are you, are you swabbing me before you give me the shot? You know, and type of thing. And so um, I'm kind of swabbing you right now, okay? <laughs> 
the, the doctor comes in and he, he, he sterilizes the spot in your arm before he sticks the needle in, right? And it's important that he does that. And it's important that he sterilizes it, and it's important that he sticks the needle in. And so um, I'm kind of swabbing you right now because I'm going to stick a needle in um, a little bit because I want to talk about what it means to dwell in the presence of the Lord. And I don't know that we all, any, including myself, do it well enough or do it long enough and understand why we need to do it. Teaching Bible basics are vitally important. C.S. Lewis is an author that I really like. He stated it this way. He said, The real job of every moral, moral teacher is to keep on bringing us back, time after time, to the old same principles which we are all so anxious not to see. <laughs> like, bring a, like bringing a, a horse back to the fence, it has refused to jump. Or bring a, ch a child back to the bit in his lesson that it wants to shirk. <laughs> and I like C.S. Lewis because he says things in a very easy way to listen to, but yet with a lot of truth. So he brings us back and he says that, you know, Jesus wants to be the most basic thing in our life. And he wants us to concentrate on the majors, which are the Jesus things. And the minors, kind of let him go. You know, don't, don't spend so much time on the minor things. Spend time on the major things. Spend time on the fundamentals, on the basics, and those principles that maybe we're also not anxious to see. But spend time there. And, you know, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, he was the wisest man that ever lived because he asked for wisdom. We all know the story of Solomon, right? But Solomon's last days, Solomon's life, did not end up the way we thought it should have ended up. Solomon, for being as wise as he was at the beginning, he lost it in the end. It's a sad story. It's sad to go back and read the book and read, understand Solomon's life. But his, his, his passage that he reads, his last comments to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, and this is out of the contemporary English version. This is Solomon's, basically his last-ditch effort to make amends for a life that he wasted. And it says, I was a wise teacher with much understanding, and I collected a number of proverbs that I had carefully studied. Then I tried to explain these things best in the best and most accurate way. Words of wisdom are like the stick a farmer uses to make animals move. These sayings come from God, our only shepherd, and they are like nails that fasten things together. My child, I warn you to stay away from any teachings except these. There is no end to books, and too much study will wear you out. Everything you were taught can be put into a few words. Respect and obey God. This is what life is all about. God will judge everything we do, even what is done in secret, whether good or bad. And what he says in secret, I think, is so key because that's where we spend our time dwelling. We, de we dwell in the secret places. And we all have opportunities in our life that maybe aren't so good because they are secret. See, but we will be judged according to Solomon. A uh, commentary written by Jason Fiebig says this on this passage. It says, remember, Solomon is writing under this 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So do you get what God is saying to you and me today? It's straightforward. It means what it says. It, it's pretty simple to understand, but so very hard to do. You can know a lot of information about God, but if you don't fear God, it doesn't matter what you know. Very wise Solomon would know a lot about that. Solomon is sharing this from a heart of a man who wasted his life. Ecclesiastes is, is like a last-ditch effort to redeem life's his life's mistakes. Solomon is like, hear me, man. Please, listen, I wasted my life. God gave me the opportunity of a lifetime, and I wasted it. I didn't fear God, or I didn't keep his commandments, and now I see that my whole life was meaningless. I am filled with regret, so don't do what I did. Learn. And here's the bottom line, says Jason. Most people, including me, sometimes think that if we just had more money, more power, more influence, more respect, more friends, more education, or whatever, we would be content. But what would Solomon say? You're wrong. I did all that, and all I have to show for it is a huge gaping hole in my heart. If you don't fear God and keep his commandments, it won't matter what you have. So now you know. Well, what are you going to do with it? Boy, that's a challenging word that Jason gave us about, he, uh, about the life of Solomon, isn't it? And my, my message this morning is a prodding of our own spiritual life in our own spiritual man. And this is where we in our spiritual life, our spiritual man has to rise up and take control of our flesh man. We are in control of our flesh man. Our spirit man can be in control, but we have to step up and we have to do the work that needs to be done so that when God examines what's done in the secrets of our heart, that God will be pleased because he will judge everything we do, even what is done in secret. The secret times of our life are so important. And I, I said a couple of weeks ago, um, and, I, and I'm very honest with you when I'm here because I know God's going to judge my heart as well. And what I do in the secret things in my life, you know, the problem with secret things is that you're not accountable to secret things. And when I say that I have to live by the word that I preach, I do have to live by the word that I preach. And if I'm not studying my Bible... If I'm not praying in my secret life, see, the problem with the secret lives is that you have a tendency to give yourself leeway when you're not being held accountable publicly. And we all have the, we all have the, the, the tendency to give ourselves some slack uh, because nobody's going to know. Because it's a secret time of my life. The Bible says go, and, go behind your door and go into your prayer closet, close the door, and then pray. Well, nobody knows if I'm praying for 10 minutes for an hour. But here's the problem. Here's the challenge, though, is that, see, God's going to know all that. And he knows it in the end. And, he, and all your secret things will be made known. You know, Ananias and Sapphira in the, in the New Testament church, they played a serious game that I think was probably one of the best things that ever happened to the early church, even though it seemed like a harsh punishment. See, they sold some land, and they brought the proceeds in to give to the church. And here's the secret things. This is how serious the secret things can be. If they would have come in and said, I sold the land for $1,000 and I want to give the church $500, the, the apostles would have been fine with that. They would have said, thank you very much for your generosity. But what they did is that they came in, they sold the property for $1,000, okay, just picking a number, 
And then they came in and said, well, we only got $500 for the property. See, in their secret things, they lied to the Spirit. And what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They came in individually, Ananias first. He came in and he said what he said. The apostles, because they have a connection somehow with the Holy Spirit, like Angel talked about today. The Holy Spirit, okay, inspires men. And the apostles knew that they were lying because the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. And Ananias was stricken dead on the moment at the spot. Okay? While they were carrying his body out, then Sapphira comes in and the apostles asked her the same thing. And here is, if Sapphira would have been honest, her life would have been spared. But she said the same thing. Oh, no, we sold it for $500. Again, she was, strict, she was stricken dead as well. That scared people. <laughs> that scared me. Would it scare you if we took an offering here and we said, all right, who tithed? <laughs> I think we should do that. <laughs> I think it scares us a little bit, huh? See, but that's the thing. That's, that's, that's the problem. That's, that's the importance of secret times. And when we're talking about dwelling in the secret times, we have to be very honest with ourselves. You know, and here the other thing is I think when, when we get to heaven, it's, it's going to be really, really good that God looks at the heart and not looks at the outward of people. Because if we, we look at the outward side of people and we see what they want us to see, and we judge people, okay, by what we see, and we think, oh, that is a really a good Christian person. But we have no idea what's going on inside. And they could be evil. They could be vile people. They could be wolves in sheep's clothing. We don't know. Right? And it's so ungood that God doesn't judge that way, that God sees the intent of the heart. Because otherwise, if we went to heaven and God was judging on the outward side of people, they, do you know what a shamble heaven would be? Do you know what a mess heaven would be like for all eternity if God judged on the outside of people? Because when we get to heaven, you see, there you're forever. You're eternal. You're never going to die. Could you imagine living a life of eternity with a swindler? with a liar, with a cheater, with somebody you couldn't trust. And that's what heaven's going to be so amazing because when we get to heaven, because God is so just, because he looks at the heart, he says there will be no sin in heaven. There will be nobody you have to fear in heaven. When you see people in heaven, you can trust them explicitly because God is seeing the heart and only those that have the secret things in their heart taken care of through scriptural and biblical foundational references will be in heaven. Therefore, heaven will be a very safe place for all eternity. Why? Because God looks at the heart. That puts me back now to being Ananias and Sapphira. Boy, I better make sure that my secret times are not hiding something I don't want God to see. Because I want to make sure that when God sees my heart, he sees purity. Not perfection, but he sees purity. He sees a person that is quick to come to ask for forgiveness. Because I make mistakes every day. I make blunders every day. I say things, I do things every day that if I don't go back and if I don't make sure that I measure myself up against God's word, then I'm going to be one of those people that aren't going to make heaven. And I think when we get there, I think we're going to be surprised if we get there. All right? We may be surprised who's there. We may be surprised. We may be thinking, well, this person, I'm sure I'm going to see this person in heaven. But I don't know. And that person that I didn't think would be there, maybe they're going to be there. The problem is, here's the, here's the challenge we have. This is the alarm clock going off in my head 
to saying, guys, what's going on in your secret times? What's going on in your, where are you dwelling? What land are you dwelling in? I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. I've got to keep moving. Where do you know, let me ask another question. Where do you know, where do you get your information from on a daily basis on what you're supposed to do that day? Now, if you're talking about a job, you would go in and you would have a job description that would identify your responsibilities for that day. And, and maybe most jobs probably have a very set things that you have to do every day. If you're uh, an entrepreneur or if you're on your own, maybe you don't have a job description. But from a Christian perspective, where do you go to get your information, to get your direction, to get your wisdom for the day? Are you relying on yourself? Are you getting up in the morning and saying, okay, self, let's go do it? Or are you taking a moment to say, Father, thank you for waking me up this morning. Thank you for giving me health and strength this morning. Now, I'm I have 24 hours this day. I've got some, some things I need to do. Lord, you have some things you want me to do. What are they? Do you spend the time, do you take the time to ask the Lord every day, God, what is it you want me to do today? Give me the marching orders that I have today. Give me the information that I need to have today because I'm going to be seeing people today, maybe that I'm not planning on seeing, and I may need to speak a word into their life, or I may need, or, or they're going to be watching my choices, my actions, my decisions, my choices of what I'm doing. And Father, I pray that I would not be a stumbling block to any one of these people today. And here's what I really think is amazing about God. And, and truly, when you, when you come up against a godly person, you know, there's just something about that person that is attractive. There's just something about that person that gives you a sense of peace around them. And they can speak things to you that they have no idea, really, the significance of what's being said by them into your life. That's prophetic. That's the prophet in a person truly coming out in a godly way because I could walk up to a person and just put my arm around him and say, hey, how you doing? You know, are you having a good day today? Or I could, give, I could say something. I have no idea what I'm saying, but it may be the thing that they needed to hear. That's the Holy Spirit walking through me, working through me. And see, when I spend my first moments of the day saying, Father, I want to dwell in your presence today, I want to come and I want to hear your, your word today, then what I'm really saying is I'm giving him the authority in my life to speak the words that need to be spoken throughout the day to the people that I run across to that I can speak life into them. I can speak encouragement into them. I can speak direction into them. Maybe even reprimand into them without even knowing it. That's part of dwelling in the Lord and that's part of, of getting that information. And I don't get that information on my own. That doesn't come from the flesh man. That comes from the spirit man, and that only comes through the Holy Spirit working in me as I'm dwelling in the Lord. You know, we're, in, we're, we're instructed to pray continually. There you go. Pray, that's, that's a memory verse that I memorized. Pray continually. You can all can memorize that too. Okay? Pray continually. Why do you suppose God, God wants us to be in a continual state of prayer? And what does it mean to be in a continual state of prayer? Does it mean that we always have to be walking around praying? Or can we be in a state of prayer all the time? 
See, it's important that we understand what prayer is. What is prayer? It's exactly what Dick gave us today, that admonition, that word that he gave to us from the Lord, that prayer is communication. That's all prayer is. It's communicating. It's communicating me to God and God to me. And so now when I am in a continual state of prayer, what that's really saying is I'm in a continual state of communication with God. And he's constantly feeding things into my life throughout my day. And it's a continual process of staying in a state of hearing the Lord. That way I can be um, effective and I can be powerful as a Christian. And we are in a continual process of being saved. I like that idea of in, a, in a continual state of being processed because I know that, that Jesus' blood saves us one time. And he, he paid the penalty one time. But yet, I see in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, verse 18, it says a passage here of Scripture that, that encourages me. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. See, it didn't say to us that have been saved. It's those that us that are being saved. Being is a, is a current tense. It is a present tense. It is a verb. It is something I'm living every day. I'm constantly being saved every day. I'm constantly living my life in a process. Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, again talks to us about continuing to live out our life. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, here we go, the secret times, okay, the secret times are so important, not just in my presence, but in my absence. In other words, when you're all by yourself in your secret times, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. See, it's that continual process of making sure my secret times are lining up with the foundation of God's Word. It's that process of working things out. It's those quiet times of our personal walk with Jesus. I have to go back to uh, C.S. Lewis again. His book, Mere Christianity, he says this about, a, about the source of a Christian's life and what it takes to keep it. This is why I like C.S. Lewis, because he's so good about how he says some things. Listen to this very carefully. It says, Your natural life is derived from your parents. That does not mean it will stay there if you do nothing about it. You can lose it by neglect, or you can drive it away by committing suicide. You have to feed it and look after it, but always remember, you're not making it. You're only keeping up a life you got from someone else. In the same way, a Christian can lose the Christ life which has been put into him, and he has to make efforts to keep it. Now, this is not a works-based salvation. It's nothing to do with our works bring us our salvation. Our salvation comes through God. But in this passage that C.S. Lewis is talking about is that just like our natural birth brings us life that we didn't bring, I can't take any credit for my birth, but I have to maintain my life to maintain living. I have to eat. I have to bring nourishment. I have to sleep. I have to take care of my life. In a Christian's perspective, it's the same thing. My Christian life is nothing I can take credit for. God saved me. He gave me new birth. 
But now, as I am a Christian, I do have to maintain my Christian life. Just like I maintain my physical life, I have to maintain my Christian life. And that's not a works-based salvation. That is living a life Christ-like to him so that he's pleased with me. And that I then can be rewarded by his blessings. And how do I do this? I do this on a daily basis. A couple of weeks ago, I gave two scriptures to, to, to memorize on a Sunday night. I asked, this, and this is the second one I gave. Psalms 37, verses 3 and 4 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So how do we do what we've just been describing about? How do we do? How do we keep our life in Jesus? How do we keep our spirit life alive? Well, let's go to this passage of Scripture right here, and let's talk about this a little bit, because I think this is a very good way that we can begin to keep our spirit man alive. Verse 3, it says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. The key words in this part of the Scripture are trust and do. See, can we do one without the other and have this passage come to pass? Can we trust and not do? Can we do and not trust and then still meet the passage, the intent of this passage? The Hebrew word for trust here is bata, and it means to rely on, put confidence in, depending upon. Basically, we are putting everything we believe in. We are trusting the Lord to be everything. In our life, we are trusting in the Lord. We're just not—we're just not simply trusting. We are relying on. We're depending upon. We're giving Him all of our life. We're trusting in Him, and then we have to do good. We have to do good with that trust. In James, it talks about faith and works. James chapter two, verse fourteen: What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And then he goes on in verses 17 and 18 in that same chapter of James, James 2. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. And I will show you my faith by what I do. See, faith and action go together. Doing, trusting in the Lord, faith and doing go together. Faith is really convincing the eye to believe in something that it cannot see. If I can't see something, then my faith will convince me that it's true because of God's word. And so I'm convincing my eye to believe in something that I cannot see. And I think this is really important because God is constantly working in our life that we would develop our faith, that we would become his image bearer more and more, and that we would learn how to trust in the Lord and do good. And that we would then become um, his workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, it says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's a doer. God doesn't sit and do nothing. God's a doer. We are a doer. We're his image maker. We are also doers in the image of God. Amen? All right, let's continue on to verse 4. Then it says, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. So now we've been saying, we've been told to trust in the Lord and do good. Put your faith in him and then work. Do and faith to go together. Then he says, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Key words here are dwelling and being safe. If we want to enjoy safety, then we must dwell in the land of the Lord. If you want safety in your life, then dwell in the land of the Lord. The Hebrew word for dwell is sekon, 
and it means to abide or live in or make a home, settle in, inhabit, basically lie down to rest. It is a life, is a place that we live in and we remain in. It's not a temporary place. It's not a place where we just pass through quickly and then move on. When we dwell someplace, we stay there. And I think the problem here, here's, here's the, the, the problem that comes into um, all mankind, is the devil is out there, and I think he's bringing confusion. He's confusing people in, in, into where is the real land we should dwell in. We get confused about this because, see, our physical eyes see things. We see our natural life here, and we see that to be very important. And it is very important. But then we also see our spiritual eyes being, being, being uh, exercised to move out of our personal or physical life into the spirit life, into the eternal life. And what the land we're to dwell in here is not the land of the physical. It's the land of the spiritual. So the enemy will come and he will, try to, he will, he will, ask, he will confuse us as to which land are you dwelling in. Do we dwell on the things of this world that we see? Or do we dwell in the spiritual world that we don't see? It's easy to dwell here because I see this. It's a challenge to dwell in the spirit world where I don't see. But that's the eternal things. Those are the things that last forever. See, we are so tempted to come into a quick fix. We're so tempted to come in on Sunday mornings and get a quick fix of Jesus and then go back out of the land of our physical world and dwell there. And then if we're not dwelling, if we're not keeping Jesus at the center point of our life, if we're not keeping him in the focal point of our life, and we get into the rest of the world and we get Monday through Friday and we're not continuing to keep Jesus in our center point, how do we expect safety? How do we expect safety there in pastures there that he's talking about? Because we're not dwelling where God wants us to dwell. We're dwelling now in our own life. We're dwelling in our own physical life. There's no safety there. We're not giving any promises of God's going to give us safety when we're dwelling in this land. We need to be dwelling on the spiritual land. We need to be dwelling in the spiritual world, the eternal world. That's where we're giving safety. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So as we dwell, where are we dwelling? What are you dwelling on? Let me challenge you this morning with this comment. If you don't find enjoyment in finding a place of quiet time before the Lord all by yourself and dwelling with him, there until you find a breakthrough that he comes in and overwhelms you, let me suggest that maybe you're missing out the best that God has for you. Let me just suggest that. If you're not, if you're not in a time, a season in your life, and we all go through seasons of life, I understand that, but if you haven't had a season of your life, or if you're not currently experiencing this, this in your season of your life, that you're not excited about what God has for you that if you're not looking forward to that quiet time, if you're not looking forward to that Bible reading time, if you're not actively seeking that, if you're not actively dwelling in that, in that quiet time, maybe you're not on the right track. Can I suggest that? Can you, can you monitor yourself? Can you judge yourself on that? I'm not judging you on that. I'm asking you to be, to be honest with your secret life, with your secret times. What and where are your treasures? Matthew chapter 9, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 21. 
It says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What treasures are you laying up? Where are you laying them? Think of this as an alarm clock, maybe for some thought. And that is that when was the last time that you woke up in the middle of the night stressed over your friends and family's spiritual life versus stressed over your own finances? Stressed over my job? Stressed over, oh gosh, you know, am I going to have enough, you know, Whatever your physical situation, whatever physical that you're challenged. See, it's easy to get stressed out on the things that don't really matter. That's a good test for all of us. That's a good litmus test for all of us to look at. When was the last time I woke up in the middle of the night with a burden on my heart that I had to pray in the spirit for somebody? When was the last time that I woke up in the middle of the night or I couldn't get to sleep because I was so stressed out over my children or my friend's child or my friend at work that's not serving the Lord. Where are you laying your treasures? What are your treasures? If your treasures are focused on the things that are temporary and they're seen, understand what's going to happen to those treasures. They're going to fade away, right? They're going to burn. They're all going to go away. So the secret things, the dwelling times, don't let the devil come in and bring confusion as to where you dwell. You dwell on the spiritual things. You dwell on the eternal things. And then moving on, finally, to verse, the last part of verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. How do you delight ourselves? We delight ourselves in the Lord by, by spending time with Him. And, and it's enjoying oneself to find joy and sensitivity, basically to become enthralled and engrossed in who the Lord is. Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. But His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law He meditates day and night. It's not that the law brings peace. It's that the law helps us know what we need to do to get peace. And then finally, after we've done all that, then he will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. <laughs> I forgot it. Help me, somebody, quick. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Wow. We're going to have to stop right here. We're going to have to, Jackie, if you'd come. As we move into communion, I, this is a place where I really believe that, that, that I knew this was going to happen. I had way too much information today to share with you. I'm sorry. But this is, this is the most important part. As we go into communion in our conclusion, this is the most important part. Because Jesus says that if we do all these things, he will give us the desires of our heart. Now, what I like about this passage is that I see, this, I see two ways to define this. If I am living my life so close to Jesus, if I am living in my life, if I really am trusting in him and doing good, if I really am dwelling in the land and enjoying safe, safe pasture, if I really am delighting in the Lord, if I really am meditating and being that, that Christian person that God so much wants to have, if I'm having that daily communication, then my desires are easy for the Lord to give because they're already lining up with his will. Then he gives me the desires of my heart. And those desires are pure desires. They're not desires to give me a pink Cadillac. They're the desires to really give me what God wants in my life to make me effective. 
All right? That's, that's one way to look at that verse. The other way to look at that verse is saying, Lord, I need you to give me the desires for my life. My desires aren't cutting it. My desires are, I'm, I'm too focused on the temporary. I'm too focused on this life. So now, Lord, I'm asking you to give me the desires of my heart so that I can trust in the Lord and do good, so that I can dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture, so that I can delight myself in the Lord. See, this is one of those passages that I can take it either way. If I'm struggling in my life, if I'm struggling in doing good, then I say, Lord, help me here. I need help. Give me your desires, Father. Give me your desires that you want to put in my life so that then I would be that person that would line up with your word. And I'll be very honest with you. I spend most of the time there. I spend most of my time in my life saying, God, please give me the desires that you want to have in my life so that you will fulfill them. But God, give me your desires. Because he answers the prayers that align up with his will. Do you see that? He answers the prayer that line up with his will. So, Father, please give me the desires of my heart. I want your desires in my heart so that I can. So that I can. That's, that's, that's the message for imperfect people. That's the gospel for people that aren't perfect. That's for me, and that's for you, and that's for our community, and that's for the world we live in, because we're not perfect people. Not many people can live the life before so that we have God's desires already in place. Most of us have to say, God, please give me your desires. Amen? Amen. This morning as we go into communion, I really want us to exercise that prerogative. And as we are preparing for communion, ask yourself these questions. That how will I be prepared unless... I'm dwelling in the safe pastures of God's will. How will I be prepared for God's greatest blessing or life's worst challenge unless I'm dwelling in the area of God's greatness? How will I be prepared for eternity unless I'm dwelling with the mindset that that's all I want today? If I'm dwelling in a, in a mindset of God, I need more in this life, I need a bigger house. I need better clothes. I need more of this. I need more of that. If that's my focal point, if that's where my dwelling place is at, then how in the world can I ever be prepared for an eternity living with God's greatness when I'm not enjoying it now? When I'm not asking God, when I'm not excited to come into his presence now, when I'm not looking forward to getting my own quiet time now. And it's not that hard. Would you stand with me? In fact, like we always do, would you just come down to the front and let's just have communion in the front and let's just, let's just take the time this morning as we prepare our heart for communion. And if you would come, if, if you don't have to be a member of the church, all we ask is that you love Jesus, Jesus in your heart. And uh, if you would, just take a, a cracker and a juice and just, then step back and we're just going to pray about it in a minute. Riley, would you... Uh, Take this Jackie and the guys in the sound. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You know, I love doing communion like this because this is such family time. And I, it just makes it so much more personal to me to have people come up and 
like you would at home. You'd go up to the table and take your own food. And this is good. Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So this morning, as you are examining your heart this morning, can you ask Jesus to give you his desires for your heart so that your treasure will be his treasure and that he will help you dwell in a land that will be forever and your riches will be forever protected and then you will be able to enjoy safe pasture both now and forever. What a blessed thing, isn't it? Amen. You know, I I love these crackers. Just look at that cracker you have in your hand. It's a saltine cracker. There's nothing special about it, but you know, as these crackers are, are busted up, they're pretty, um, well, they're pretty unique, aren't they? There's no two crackers alike here. You're never going to find two alike. And, and that's exactly Christ's life for you. It was pretty busted up. It was pretty busted up. When Jesus died on the cross, it really busted him up. I mean, it really made him unique. There is no person, no person in this world that could ever be like Jesus because of the uniqueness that it took when they busted him on the cross. And when I looked at these crackers and I looked at them and I said, they're all busted up. I thought, you know, that is so perfect because this reflects the life of Christ. And then he busted himself up for us. So this morning as we partake in communion, as we, as we eat this cracker in a minute, I just challenge us to allow the Lord to bust us up in appropriate response. Jesus, we just told this cracker up. And Lord, we know what this is about. We know that this reflects your life. We know that this reflects your body, that you died, that you willingly gave on the cross for us. And Lord, as we come in on a regular basis and as we enjoy the presence of the table of your goodness, God, we also understand the bustedness of your life for our behalf. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the way you took it and you paid our penalty. And now now we partake of this now in Jesus' name, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you partake together, please? Amen. And then I look at this cup, and you know, the beautiful thing about a fluid like like blood, now this is juice, but the beautiful thing about that is that no matter what angle I take that cup, it always finds level. All right, the fluid, always don't tip it to the much that you drop it on the floor, please, because it stains. But as you look at it, you always see that it takes the level. And that's what Jesus' blood does for us. It always finds us the level spot in our life, doesn't it? It always brings us back to the level, even if we're, even if we're skewed, even if we're off base a little bit. When we apply the blood of Christ to our life, it always just brings us back to the level. It brings us back to where he then can be the proper foundation one more time for us. And that is so beautiful to see because I need that in my life. Father, we thank you for the blood. We thank you, Lord Jesus, how you always bring us back to the level. How you always bring us back to your life-giving blood. How you always restore us, Lord. And as we are our imperfect people, and as we come to you, Jesus, totally relying on you, totally trusting in you, Father, we pray now in Jesus' name that you would bring us back to your foundational 
basics again one more time. We love you, Jesus, and we celebrate this now as we partake in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's partake together. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Now it's appropriate that we take a little bit of time and we dwell and we worship him. Let's sing the song that Jackie has. And in your own unique way, just raise your hands, raise your heart, and let's just praise him for just a couple minutes here before we go into the fellowship next door. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. In the glory of your presence, I find rest for my pray that we could sing this on a song, this song on a regular basis all day long. Lord, that we would always walk in the midst of your presence. Lord, all day long, Jesus, will walk in your presence and we can sing this song, I love your presence. I love to be in your presence. Help us to dwell in your presence, Jesus. Amen. Father, give us a great week coming up. I pray you'd be with us this week, Father. Just honor. We honor you. We welcome you, Jesus to walk with us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.